Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has a very special and important focus as we are going to discuss the many challenges that specifically affect women in medicine. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Kim Blumenthal, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, where she serves as the co-director for the clinical epidemiology program within the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology, and the quality and safety officer for allergy at the Edward P. Lawrence Center for Quality and Safety. With over 60 peer-reviewed publications and research funding from the NIH and AHRQ, Dr. Blumenthal is a widely recognized expert in drug hypersensitivity and novel penicillin allergy stewardship programs. But most impressively, and even more importantly, she has become a very successful academician while also being a mother to three young children. So Dr. Blumenthal, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you're here. And I think this is an important conversation. And I, I know our listeners are going to learn so much from your valuable insight. But before we get into the topic at hand, we're recording this in early November 2020. Um, during an ongoing and worsening global COVID-19 pandemic, also at a time where you just finished your most recent grant cycle. So I'd like to start with the the, the hard but easy question. How are you doing? I mean, you know, how are you really doing? That's an excellent question. I don't think anyone's doing really well right now. I'd say for me personally, things have gotten a little bit better since the beginning of the pandemic. I was able to go back to being an allergist, to being a researcher. I was able to get more help at home. I resubmitted my R01 application and uh, that R01 actually was first reviewed just a week into the pandemic by infectious disease epidemiologists. So I felt really great that I was able to get it back into submission and back under review. So largely doing better, but uh, experiencing a lot of anticipation given the number of cases and hospitalizations increasing to COVID again in Massachusetts and around my area. Mm. Well, I appreciate your honesty and uh, it sounds you know, like a lot of challenges on many different levels. I, I recall you know, many months ago, you had mentioned that, were you actually taking care of COVID-19 patients or you were pulled from your normal allergist duties? Is that true? It is true. I actually, Mass General Hospital where I work primarily um, took care of the vast majority of COVID-19 hospitalized patients during that first large spring surge. And so there were times when our hospital was caring for 400 hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and our hospital has about 1,000 beds. So most of our regular floors, including you would appreciate even our pediatric floors and pediatric ICUs were taking care of adults and all children were going to Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, 
along with my colleagues, we all took care of COVID-19 patients on what was designated a COVID ward. Um, and uh, we did rotations day and night as internists, um, including our fellows, including our attendings, even our clinical director, everyone was involved. Wow, uh, what, what was that like? I think it was the first word that comes to mind is scary because it was the beginning of when this was all happening. We weren't sure if we had adequate PPE. In fact, our surge team started when the PPE recommendation was still a surgical mask and goggles or a face shield. And so just a surgical mask to take care of COVID-19 patients is of course not what we're doing now. And really those recommendations were because of a supply issue rather than a safety issue. And so it was a very hard time. And I think that for us, um, we needed to just be part of this larger mission for public health and to use our training for good. And it really um, scary as a mom to say, I'm gonna walk into a hospital where there are COVID-19 patients and I'm gonna voluntarily take care of them when you sort of feel like your primary mission is actually um, and my primary mission every day is to keep my family safe. So, and to be safe and live a long time for my boys. So it was, I think it was a very hard thing for everyone. And it was specifically hard, I think for allergists who it's a predominantly outpatient field and an allergist researcher like myself, I do 10% clinical, um, mm. and to, um, not have, uh, much control and to understand that we are all part of sort of these bodies that were needed for another mission. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I, I truly hope one day we've seen wonderful, you know, thanks and appreciation along the way, but one day we're going to look back on all this. And um, I really hope that the, the selfless acts by yourself and so many of our countless colleagues really gets recognized for what it was. Um, and I hope that you never go back there. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure if they wanted you to skin test a bunch of folks, you would have been very comfortable doing that. But uh, this was <laughs> just a slightly different than, <laughs> than something along those lines. Yes, I was looking for when the COVID patients also had drug allergy, because then I really got <laughs> to use my expertise. That's that's your wheelhouse, absolutely. Speaking of which, um, you know, you personally have contributed really so much to our our specialty's understanding of not only drug allergy but really practical aspects of addressing and delabeling incorrect drug allergies within our patients. What uh, what part of that got you interested initially? Where did that spark come from? Internal medicine has a lot of antibiotic selection as part of it the largest thing we see are infections. And I think that I really liked infectious diseases and I was thinking about how we pick the right drug for the right bug. And I got sidetracked by this idea that whatever was listed in the allergy part of the electronic health record really could have deterred or dictated what the treatment was. And I think that that really became my interest and then learning a little bit about how allergists had tools to evaluate real allergy um, really led me to think that this was where I wanted to spend my clinical and research time. I was just completely sold by the idea that this was really important and overlooked by all of our hospitals. 
And um, do you see yourself spending the rest of your career uh, investigating these, you know, very difficult uh, circumstances or other interests that you'd like to delve into at some point or to be determined? Well, I do like just the general um, clinical research methods. I like clinical epidemiology methods. I like doing decision models and I like implementation science, which is basically the science of how we change things that we already know. So how do you implement in a hospital and how do you do it appropriately? How do you change practice? So I think that I'm always going to be interested in the sort of using these research methods. And I, I have a, a mentor who once said to me, well, Kim, if you do your job well, there won't be mislabeled penicillin allergies and you won't have anything left to, left to study. And I, I think I've made uh, uh, some progress in, in these years studying this this area, but it's not it's not anywhere near where it needs to be to say this isn't a problem anymore. So I think I have more to go um, just in this small area of penicillin allergy, which is just part of drug allergy, which is part of allergy and immunology. But I think I'll stay engaged with a number of things, even that mentees want to study. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, don't only like to study penicillin allergy. <laughs> okay. No, that's great. You know, you made me think of a, somebody said to me 15 years ago when omalizumab came out and they said, oh, uh, with, you know, if you can block the IgE antibody, we won't need allergists anymore. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> we're still here. <laughs> we're still here. Still going strong, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, so to get to the, today's topic, I, I initially invited you to return as a guest on our podcast after I saw your post on Twitter, of all places, uh, in early September under the hashtag, her time is now. And if I may, what you, what you posted at that time was, uh, you stated, I am an allergist and clinical researcher at Mass General and Harvard Medicine on my last year of an NIHK award with three children under nine and working towards fall NIH grants deadlines, in parentheses, again. You included the hashtag, her time is now. Uh, what inspired you to post that message? This was part of a larger social media campaign, hashtag her time is now. And I was asked to be part of it from uh, one of my colleagues in rheumatology at Mass General Hospital. And I received the purple mask with the hashtag in the mail. And the campaign was literally just to take a photo of myself wearing the mask and post her time is now. And it came at a time um, where I truly wanted to post something inspirational about how it is the time of women in medicine now, but I was actually just feeling so exhausted and discouraged and in somewhat like disbelief that our time could be now. Um, I've been seeing lay and academic data that suggested that the pandemic is going to take women back in the workplace more than a decade. Mm -hmm. um, so um, one thing, though, that has been uh, known to be useful is sort of peer support and having a group of women for professional support. So I guess my post was my trying to reach out on a day that we were supposed to be doing this campaign to introduce myself and to sort of proclaim my version of like this, nevertheless, she persisted, I'm going to keep going kind of um, mantra. Oh, it's great. Well, you know, uh, you got my attention uh, and I know you got the attention of others as well. And I think this is a wonderful example of how a prominent, well-respected expert physician such as yourself can utilize social media in the role of advocacy. Um, and, you know, this is raising awareness. And um, I think it was, it was very powerful and I'm glad you posted it. 
Thanks. <laughs> um, now, on top of that original post, you also um, put additional information on that you tagged on there about how few women allergists specifically have been promoted to the rank of professor. Uh, in academic medicine. And you were also the lead author on a paper in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology from 2019, uh, not that long ago, that explored sex differences in academic rank in allergy immunology. Uh, I'd love to hear more. Can you tell us what you looked at and, and what you found? Yes, absolutely. So we use data from Doximity to study academic allergy and immunology doctors as of 2014. And we first started by identifying the academic allergist immunologists, which there were 507 only. Um, so it just shows how small of a group we have. And this is less than 10% of all of our US allergist immunologists to begin with. And of those, there were 184 female academic allergists and immunologists. And in this study, we compared the males to the females in academic allergy. And what we learned was that the men were older, they had a mean age of 57, and the women were four, had a mean age of 48. Um, and then they were more likely to have NIH grants um, to the tune of 23.5% uh, of men had at least one NIH grant, while only 13% of women had at least one NIH grant. And then men were also more likely to be involved in clinical trials investigations, 16% uh, versus 10%. And also they had more Medicare payments. And we looked at this because this is, looks at, uh, at least for the adult doctors, uh, a mar marker of clinical activity. Um, and then we looked at sort of two main outcomes, publications and academic rank. And when we looked at publications, uh, when you look at it completely unadjusted, that's not fair because the men were older, they had more time to accumulate publications. But when we look at age adjusted publications, um, for men, it was 25.8, and for women, it was 17.8, and that was a significant difference. That was all publications. And then when we looked specifically at the first or senior author publications, the men had 19.4, and the women had 12.2, and that was also a significant difference. So to put this another way, a male allergist and a female allergist in academia of the same age, the men had eight more papers, including seven more first or senior author papers than the women. Uh, so that was, uh, I think, quite remarkable of a difference. And then we look at academic rank, which is assistant, associate, uh, full professor status. And all of those other factors like go into the idea of your promotion and your academic rank. So then we looked and we did an adjusted analysis to see whether there was a disparity potentially in academic rank between the men and the women allergists. Notably, we found only 24 female full professors. And so that was just 14%. And there were 126 male full professors. That was 39%. But actually, when we adjusted for all those different factors that go into promotion, we didn't find that there was a significant difference. There was no bias that we could say was existing in academic ranks. So what it really suggests is it wasn't um, that we didn't find a significant promotion difference, but there were so many contributing factors. Why are women not uh, ha don't have equal NIH grants? Why don't they have equal publications? Why aren't they it, being involved with clinical trials? Um, so there were a lot of differences that sort of lead to uh, next steps for hopefully me and our community. Well, that's really interesting. What, what made you even think to do that study in the first place? There were a lot of studies coming out on sex differences in salary, sex differences in academic rank at that time. Um, and uh, 
the senior author of that paper is uh, my husband, um, uh, Dr. Daniel Blumenthal. And actually mm -hmm. he was on the original JAMA study that looked at all academic um, uh, medicine um, specialties and, and overwhelmingly found this bias. So when they looked overall, not just at our allergy 500 and you adjusted for all of those same things, clinical trials, NIH, publications, there was a significant difference in promotion um, that was detected. So there was more of a bias that they saw. Women were not being promoted equally as men in the big study. And that big study was uh, conducted by my husband. So he had access to the data. And I just couldn't wait to get my hands on it to study allergists. <laughs> you take an inquisitive mind with access to data. Look out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> that, that's great. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a, it's, it's a simple thing, but until you actually study it in a um, sound methodological manner and publish it so that people are aware of it, you know, it, then you can't drive change that way. Now, I know your study wasn't designed for to evaluate any type of cause and effect or other things. You mentioned some contributing factors that went into, um, you know, like NIH funding and involvement in clinical trials. But outside of that, do you have any um, thoughts on, you know, why is this happening? Yes, I, I'll, I guess I'll answer that with uh, two thoughts. Like one is um, my favorite paper from the BMJ Christmas issue, and it looked at uh, who's making decisions, who makes these promotion decisions, and what do they look like? And um, the BMJ kind of has these real articles, but they are kind of in jest or spoof type <laughs> articles for their Christmas issue. And one year, um, just recently, it was looking at more than 1,000 department leaders at the top 50 NIH-funded U.S. medical schools. And what they found was that there were fewer women, 13%, versus men with mustaches, so 19%. So basically, they were just, it wasn't even women versus men. It was women versus men with mustaches. So they, they, they found that actually only six in 20 specialties had more women than mustaches. Um, they even describe a mustache index for different specialties. So it, it just really goes to play at this idea that without women uh, leaders, the infrastructure isn't favorable towards supporting and promoting women. And that has persisted despite any gains we've made. Hmm. Interesting interpretation. All I'm hearing is that we need more men with mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe so many men had mustaches. This was just like last year. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's also this idea of implicit bias um, mm, that we have mm -hmm. that is worth addressing. And um, there was a study from Wisconsin Madison where they looked at NIH grants, and uh, the women they had uh, worse scores for these different NIH categories: priority, um, approach, significance, and they had the same um, words used to describe their research. So the the summary statements had similar words for the men and women, but then when it came to a score, women were scored lower. So um, mm -hmm. it just really seems that there's um, implicit bias and then there's representation issues um, and we have better. Yeah, you know, these are these are buzzwords and, and we all get the emails about, uh, you know, attend to this implicit bias training and, you know, joining over your lunch hour and things like that. But, um, I, you know, the reason is because this is pervasive uh, <laughs> and it takes more than just, you know, getting an email or, or reading a book. Uh, you have to, you know, actively uh, partake in this and, and, and find change within yourself, speaking as a, as a man. But, um, yeah, I, I think that that's great insight. And I'm glad that you published that study and I hope to see it 
you know, more. Um, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned early on in our conversation. And a lot of people, including yourself, have really drawn attention to these dramatic differences in how women physicians and scientists have been impacted during the COVID-19 pandemic compared with men. Tell us more about, you know, these disparities. What's going on? I would be very happy to. So before COVID, uh, a study in 2014 showed that women spent eight and a half more hours a week on domestic tasks than their male counterparts when both the men and the women were actually on K awards. They were on junior faculty investigation awards, the same award that I'm in the fifth year of. Um, the women were spending eight and a half more hours a year, uh, hours a day, <laughs> a week, sorry, on domestic tasks. So since COVID, there have been this, this increasing demands on women from that baseline of this is unequal. So from the baseline of this is unequal, if daycares were closed, we were the daycare. If schools were closed, we were the school. Then schools had like these expectations, um, virtual expectations of handing in homeworks or um, getting materials for different projects. And it was very, very hard to, to even keep up. Um, so while trying to manage these clinical demands, research, my research team, my mentees, my sanity, um, I was also trying to submit homework for my third grader on this <laughs> application called Seesaw, um, trying not to have be the only family without the materials for the nursery school kids to be able to do whatever art project they were doing that day, you know, finding them sugar and um, colored dye or whatever it was that day. <laughs> 14 colored pencils. <laughs> um, it, it was it was a lot of demand. So it wasn't a surprise to me when uh, the New York Times had this headline that I won't forget because I felt it was a specifically low week. And they said nearly half of men say they do most of the homeschooling. Three percent of women agree. <laughs> <laughs> so in that study, 80 percent of the women said that they were doing more of the homeschooling. And obviously there's this huge disconnect. <laughs> And unfortunately for women researchers who were, um, you know, already uh, doing more household related tasks than their male counterparts, um, I think it's a a affecting research outputs. So if we look at a couple studies, like looking at MedArchive, where you can post your preprints of your papers, there was a gender gap that was 23% before COVID and it expanded to 55%. And so that's, you know, virtually like doubling our um, gender gap because of COVID. And then if you look at COVID research, it's also highly male. Um, women's share of first, last, and um, overall authorships, it's 19%, 5%, and 8%. So this is, um, it is, it was hard to keep up before and nearly impossible now. I continue to be fascinated by how COVID has just unearthed and untrenched all of these massive disparities that exist across patients, uh, the minority population, those in lower socioeconomic statuses, and, and you know, this this specific issue here with with women in medicine, um, and the all of these things have been there under the surface for so long, and then all it takes is a global pandemic to just rip that scab right off and expose all of it. Yeah, um, I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried for my mentees. I worry for my the people I work with. I worry for my friends and colleagues. Um, it, I, I worry that people will leave medicine or leave research. And it, I think it's, it, uh, the systems have to be designed to actually, um, run that bias needle the other way to support an infrastructure where women can continue, young women specifically, 
um, can continue to um, be a doctor, be an academic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a career in academics, as you know, uh, better than anybody involves uh, multi, I don't want to say multitasking, but lots of tasks. So there's a lot of commitments, there's a lot of emails, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of decisions need to be made. So when you have the stress and anxiety from dealing with a pandemic and when you're 10% clinical allergist and you're pulled to cover and actually care for adult COVID patients who might be dying in front of you uh, and relying upon a skill set which you may not have used for over a decade, and you're dealing with children at home uh, and trying to balance your career, what does that do to a person when you get an email that asks for you to you know, submit something by a certain deadline that may only be in a short time period? How, you know, how do you respond to that, both internally and externally? <laughs> Yeah, I think I recently saw this great um, paper that had sort of these um, 10 simple rules for a female principal investigator. And it was published, I think, in one of the PLOS journals, PLOS Computational Biology. And um, well, first of all, rule number zero was there aren't, there are literally no rules, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically throw all the rules at the table. Um, but um, one of the suggestions was drop something. And that really has resonated with me because I think that you're, um, everyone wants to be a good citizen. When you're in academic medicine, you have a lot of bosses. And then when you're involved with different organizations nationally and have collaborators, you sort of feel like you have, I, have, I, I sometimes feel like I have an endless number of bosses and mentors. And if everyone asks me for one favor, I will never be able to do any of it, right? And so I think that we have to say no and that it's okay to not do everything and it's okay to drop something. And so I think that um, I'm, I'm trying to reevaluate what I need to do versus um, what maybe somebody who works with me could do or work in, or in recent fellow, for example. Is there anything that I could give to somebody else that would um, be meaningful for them and help me out? And it's a win-win. Um, of course, I also don't want to burden anybody. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Fine balance. No, but that, yeah. I think that's a great point of um, we all need to cut ourselves some slack. It's okay to say no if you can't do it. Uh, it's better to, you know, under promise and over deliver. But I love what you just pointed out of, well, let's spread the wealth a little bit, um, especially, you know, if there are, you know, junior faculty or some fellows in training that might be uh, more open to an opportunity that we just don't have the time for. So that's great advice. Now, you have a very impressive academic career, um, including you earned your um, MD degree from Yale University, your master's in science from Harvard, followed by residency and fellowship at Massachusetts General. Uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenal pedigree. Um, and in your experience and conversations with female colleagues along that route, uh, are there systemic differences in how women in medicine are treated compared with men? I think that in general, I've been very fortunate to be on to be at places that have focused on these issues, at least uh, from the time of my uh, medicine and allergy training. I think medical school, it was still pretty early to be calling out um, bias and differences in men and women without feeling sort of uh, the, that you could speak up. But by the time I was in training and at Mass General, um, I think that we've been in a a place where there's, you know, women in medicine committees, there are specific research opportunities for women, especially women of childbearing age or who have children. And there ha I, I feel very well supported by those systems. Um, I also have a department of medicine chairwoman. And I think that that really sets the tone and helps. And she's been our chairwoman at Mass General for a while. 
Um, but I, I, I'm sure that generally we still have to prove ourselves and that this is when you're sort of young and in your training and then finish your training and your junior faculty, this is the time that all these academic, um, you're supposed to be able to increase your academic performance and, and that's the time that everyone's watching for you know, who you're gonna be or what are you gonna be. And it's the same time that you're building a family very likely. And I think that there, um, if you feel uncomfortable diving into research or academics right after fellowship, there still aren't um, options for like re-entry later. And mm -hmm. so this is another thing that I think we have to be aware of is just because you didn't choose to be a researcher right out of fellowship doesn't mean like you can't ever do research if you're a woman. And so um, sort of other paths to getting back into sort of research or academics later, um, there, there are just no clear paths right now. So. Hmm. Yeah, I, I personally have learned so much from my wonderful female colleagues that I work with, and your, you know, such as yourself and those in our specialty, and also my wife, who's in, in academic medicine and leadership, uh, about the differences in how female physicians are treated by patients and staff, um, and something that I wasn't necessarily that aware of until relatively recently. Uh, so I, it, I'd be very interested, especially for my fellow male colleagues who may be unaware as well, or for anybody listening for that matter, uh, who've never experienced these, these differences, what are some examples that you've experienced? Yes, I'm happy to share a few examples. And I think that these are going to sound very familiar to all the women who listen. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, um, I was a medical student at a VA, and I guess I could stop there and every woman listening would know what I'm going to say. Um, there were so many offhanded comments from our, our veterans, but one of them that caught me off guard was when I went to admit a new patient um, and he said, you know, I didn't know I was going to get a lady doctor. And it was just one of those things. It wasn't overtly sexist with like some other comments, but it just, how do you, yes, I, I am a woman. I am going to be a doctor. Um, and I moved on. Uh, there are also a number of uh, other examples. Uh, I have a primary care clinic when I was a resident and a patient. I still remember this patient specifically, um, routinely called me Kimberly. Um, I had never given him permission to call me by, by my first name and it really made me uncomfortable. Um, and I never spoke up. Um, I had an experience as a senior resident that will stick with me forever, um, where I was a pregnant senior resident, uh, supervising senior for a bunch of interns who were admitting patients that night. And I was going in to check on one of the interns to see how he was doing with his new admission. And as a pregnant woman in scrubs who walked into that room, he assumed I was the nurse. Um, and he asked me if I could go get his patient another one milligram of Dilaudid for his pain. So um, these are just a few examples. It doesn't stop at clinical situations. And uh, these are all the things that women in medicine uh, will all relate to. It, it's happened to all of us. Mm. Oh, my gosh. And then, you know, I assume that this happens repeatedly over and over and over again across different you know situations and scenarios, and it just builds up over time. Um, so yeah, I've heard a lot of, uh, especially being called by your first name, and the biggest one seems to me like just being mistaken for a nurse or or a non-physician for that matter, uh, which is you know it's just never okay. <laughs> um, what about discrepancies when women take board exams? I mean, you know, we we all sign up and we go and we sit in a room in front of a computer. We're not allowed to leave for three hours, whatever, until we finish it and you know, all this other stuff. Um, you know, especially if a woman is nursing, 
how does it, how does this um, impact them, and is anything being done about it? I I can't speak exactly to the uh, what's happening um, as far as to change this, but I do know that um, women who are taking any medical board exams were never given any special accommodations, not extra time, not a location that was private other than the bathroom, not even just the simple needs, and we are healthcare professionals. Um, And so in addition to just being nervous about going into a very long board exam as an exhausted new mom or, you know, new mom again, all of the women are thinking, well, how will I plan that one break so that I can pump breast milk? Where can I pump breast milk? Is there an outlet? Is there a fridge? What if the milk is out for more than five hours? So all of these questions are sort of uh, dominating the process and it's just not made to be easy. And so it's just not acceptable for us to certify health professionals who we hope would you know, uh, breastfeed or be able to pump milk while they are taking their boards. And uh, just as far as age goes, we are, this isn't an uncommon event, right? Our um, medicine and pediatrics residents, as well as our fellows in um, ABAI are often uh, new moms, breastfeeding uh, moms who need um, accommodations to be able to um, pump during their time. Yeah, that's just one other example of how, you know, it's, it's it's not fair. It's not equal, um, you know, when you're going through that. You know, um, I'd like to quote a line from the musical Hamilton, if I may. Uh, and <laughs> sure. <laughs> you you uh, seem to write like you're running out of time uh, with all of your publications, including your role as co-editor for the recent uh, Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and Practice Issue uh, devoted to drug allergy. Uh, would you mind taking a few moments just to describe your personal writing process, including you know small details like when do you even find the time to write? Is it first thing in the morning, throughout the day? Uh, how do you edit? Uh, what's your approach to a new manuscript? Um, you know, I, I'd love to learn more. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that I go through more drafts than Hamilton did, but um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I do like scientific writing, um, and my approach differs depending on what I'm writing. Um, sometimes sort of an opinion or an editorial. Um, I actually can usually do that, um, you know, first thing in the morning, almost in one sitting, just with ideas that I've generated, um, if it's especially it doesn't need to be highly referenced. Um, but uh, for original research, I like to start the manuscript draft when you start the project. So you know the title, you know the authors, who are the players, you maybe can think about a target journal, who would be interested in that? Um, and then, you know, of course, your dream journal, your target journal. Um, and then sometimes just making that title page is a place to start, a Word document with a title page formatted for that t- target journal. And then that you, it basically feels like you've started something. And then from there, um, I write the methods as we're doing the study because that's, what, that's the best way to be able to ca- keep track of your methods and to be able to um, sort of write as you go and define variables or whatever you're doing. Um, and then comes the analysis and the tables and figures. And then actually when the tables and figures are done, then I just write the results because the tables and figures just write my results. And then I can just like do the results in one sitting. Um, and they write themselves. And then the discussion I have to admit is like, nobody likes to write a discussion, right? So uh, I break that up. Uh, <laughs> and um, sometimes it's just like, just got to get the words on paper and it's not that very pretty and you can make it pretty later. Or sometimes um, I will, instead of looking at a blank discussion page, I, I'll just write the limitations because you can channel your inner reviewer 
and know everything that's wrong with your paper <laughs> and just like write your limitations so that you're like, yes, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. You can write that. Um, and then, so, um, ultimately then you get this whole, whole, whole paper together sort of as soon as you're done with a project. And I think it's, for me, it is a little bit about efficiency and, um, writing when you can, um, I do write and think best in the morning. Um, I can talk and edit in the afternoon, like, like now. <laughs> um, so I try to stick to that. Those are sort of my, my, uh, my um, timeframes for being able to write. Um, and then procrastinating isn't, a, isn't an option, right? Not when you have uh, so many demands on you. So um, I sort of psych myself up internally. I have a lot of psychiatrists in my family. So I sort of give myself a little bit like you can do it, blank page, just write it down and we, we just get, get to it. What, what time do you try to wake up every morning? <laughs> so I still have a three-year-old. So um, the three-year-old um, comes in about 5.30 in the morning. So, mm. yeah, I still don't. I, I haven't set an alarm in over nine years. <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> and when you sit down to write, do you um, have a timer or a certain block of time? Or is it um, words on a page, certain sections? What's your determination for how long you're going to go through that process? Until I am interrupted, really. Ah. So I think I try to make a huge block. Um, and to be honest, you, it doesn't make any sense to try to do something if you have less than an hour, unless you're just going to make a title page or like get some references from PubMed and save them as PDFs or something very minor, build an EndNote library or something like that. So if I have less than an hour, I'll do some sort of task like that that makes me feel good about like mm -hmm. making progress but that you actually haven't made progress um but generally i like to look for over an hour block of time and um to really just like keep going until you're exhausted or have a meeting mm, okay do you uh have like open boxes and to-do lists or do you just keep a mental checklist to get through what you need to do yeah i use um uh a, a sort of a checklist, yeah, of, of things, of priority tasks for each project that we work on and sort of a project management tool. Um, and each day I sort of think about what I need to do during it. I look at my calendar and I, I see where I have spots where I'm not doing anything that's scheduled. Mm. And like, I think, well, what should I do then? Or what should I do then? And I try to stick to it. So you got to close your in basket and you got to close mm. your, mm -hmm. your outlook box because you could always spend more time doing those things during that hour and a half, but then you haven't done what you wanted to do that hour and a half. And so um, I, I'm, I'm not the most efficient person, but I'm trying to be. <laughs> I, I think you're doing all right. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that tip though, close the inbox. You're right, because every ding you get, it draws our attention somewhere else. Um, yeah, do you, uh, do you listen to music when you write or do you have a, a silent background? I realized I can't. I actually, when I was, younger and studying, I used to be able to listen to music and now I, uh, I, I, I can't, so I will, uh, just write. Okay. Yeah. I, I've, quiet. That's interesting. I've, um, <laughs> you and I are very different people. I've, um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the discussion portion for everybody listening. Uh, <laughs> really? Oh my no, goodness. Yeah. That's our chance to explain to the world. Maybe we know, should work together. Context. I'll just like write the paper and send you the, you know, I'll write the the other part, and you just write the discussion for me. <laughs> yeah, I could I could use another sixty easy publication, sure. 
but I've learned, um, this is so weird, uh, Steely Dan, if I have Steely Dan on, I can bang a whole paper out in a couple hours. Huh. <laughs> it's, my, it's my groove. I don't know why. It's so weird. I haven't tried Steely Dan specifically, <laughs> um, but I, I am, I do think about that it would be nice to sort of like get some music on and get, you know, I, I think it sort of, because then you'd have like a beginning and an end to when you're writing. Ah, you yeah. Like, so for me, it's all about the structure. So if I were like, yeah, I do Steely Dan, you put like Steely Dan on and then you play to the end of whatever album. I can't list an album of Steely Dan. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you sharing all that. Cause I, I think, um, I know a lot of people listening are, um, probably listening to this and, and thinking, oh my gosh, I, it just the concept of sitting down to write a paper is a daunting task. And I think when somebody is so well-versed in it, such as yourself, and you just have this pattern in place and it, it's it's natural to you at this point, but it never was. It, you didn't start off naturally just writing papers, but to help people understand some of the insight into you know how the, how the sausage is made is very helpful. So I appreciate you sharing that, uh, even though nobody will now ever read your discussion portions ever again, but. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, I don't let the paper go until I'm happy with the discussion. But it is when you, yeah, if you ever read any of my discussions, just know the angst that brought it there, right? Wow, you're, you're never going to live this down. All right, we're going to move on. So, uh, all right, you talked about writing your papers and, and things like that and some of the ways you go through it. But, you know, you you have the added uh, daunting task, speaking of daunting tasks, of um, grant renewals and things along those lines. So. Can you describe for us what your life is like during these grant renewal cycles and uh, when everything comes to a grinding halt except for that? Yes. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to scare people away from choosing research. So <laughs> <laughs> Especially any young women who are just recently finished their allergy fellowship. I really want to be encouraging. But I have to admit that for me, um, grants are really overwhelming. They have so many more pieces than a paper, right? They're, um, you know, compiled NIHR01 and my had like 250 pages to it. Mm -hmm. Some of it's structured budget type stuff, but a lot of it was stuff that um, I had to think about. And um, so for me, nothing is harder because it's a huge task. Um, it makes me sort of nervous and I'm busy. And I, I, I think that I worry that I'm not... Uh, the best person to you know my husband or to my to my kids at that time because i'm i actually think i carry that sort of weight of that deadline with me um especially sort of the month before mm. um so i just finished for the november 5th deadline which i think is very soon or and uh, i feel just so much different having you know let that go right and um uh, so it's a hard time for when you're writing these these grants. And I think that I largely had to work some weekend mornings. I had to have a babysitter come in and mm. um, the same babysitter because of COVID, but would come for about three hours in the, um, the uh, morning on the weekend so that I could literally write for those three hours. And sort of the same thing that we were talking about, sort of like the babysitter would come, I'd say goodbye to the kids and I would literally work for those three hours straight. Um, just, you have to be efficient. And it wasn't, it was a necessity because of all the other demands on me during the work week um, to do that. But it's also great to now go back to um, uh, weekends with the kids the whole day. Um, and then while you're going through this, I'm sure you a lot of stuff falls by the wayside professionally. Um, do you find that you're behind at the end of this and you have to play catch up then? And it just, you know, it's an ongoing perpetual cycle of trying to play catch up or how does that work? 
there's a little bit of what did I miss while I was, <laughs> was another, <laughs> sorry, another Hamilton. <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, I didn't even do that on purpose. <laughs> so like my, there are definitely like emails and asks of things that like I just missed because I was so focused on this deadline. And so um, being able to sort of take stock in what uh, is important for the next sort of steps. Um, and and uh, it, it was hard because actually during that time, I was actually on allergy consults with our new fellows. And I also wasn't the, the teacher I wanted to be, you know, there were all these things, like I have a lot of expectations that I, I, I would have loved to um, spend more time with them, um, chit-chatting about them, themselves or, or the patients or, and I, I felt like I was all business because I, I it was a, the, the time constraint. But now I think um, sort of taking stock of what's next is sort of my, um, and I can go back to my regular um, allergist researcher role, mm -hmm. hopefully. Okay. Do you ever try sending like an out of uh, automatic reply on your emails of, hey, I have a, a grant deadline coming up on this date. And if you need anything, um, you know, send it to me again after this date or anything like that, or not to that extreme. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, thought. So um, I haven't, I haven't done anything like that. Um, and it's largely because I, I think that then I have to have a structure for figuring out whether they did. Well, I guess if it's important, they'd email again, right? So maybe it would yeah. work. Um, but I, it probably goes back to wanting to not, uh, wanting to continue your collaborative relationships with all these different people um, during the process where, sure, my priority is getting this grant out, but where I, I, it's, it, I can still do other things. I might be sitting at my desk for 10 hours that day. Mm. To, to, to tell have an out-of-office email would feel a little odd to me. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that. I was just curious. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> as, as, we, uh, as we wrap things up, I, I'd like to end with a, a call to action of sorts uh, with our last sort of uh, topics that we discuss here. And, um, you know, I, I am the stereotypical white male. Um, I've never really, you know, personally experienced subtle or overt disparities during my career path related to, you know, my gender or what I look like, at least that I'm aware of. Um, so what are some ways that I can do better uh, or my colleagues? Um, you know, how can I learn more? How can we learn more? What are some tangible things that I can do on a day-to-day -day basis to support my female colleagues? Well, one thing would be to speak up in meetings. In mm. um, When you're in a place, you might hear a great idea voiced by a woman and it goes nowhere but you think it's a great idea. Um, I think that by simply saying, I like Kim's idea, or I like Carrie's idea, um, maybe that idea will be more heard and shine a light um, also on why it wasn't recognized as a great idea in the first place, which was probably that it was, it, mm. it may be that it was just the idea of, of one woman in the group. Um, so I think like using your voice to help others in a sort of a committee, um, uh, format or um, other formats that are in group formats um, to sort of uh, make an idea heard. Um, of course, representation is important. So if you're on any committee that doesn't have women, also mm -hmm. doesn't have people of color, um, we have to think why have that com committee? What is the goal of that committee? Um, so search committees, promotion committees, interview committees. And then uh, one thing I just finished doing is writing letters of recommendation. 
um, for junior, um, junior folks wanting to go to med school, wanting to go to residency, wanting to go to allergy fellowship. I just wrote all these letters of recommendation. And it's really important to not use sort of gender specific language in those letters. And I think I would, hmm. I would challenge male letter writers to give their um, letters of recommendation a read by someone else without any sort of the, the name blacked out and with a he, she, or you know, all blacked out and sort of see whether they can tell if it's a, if you're writing about a, a woman or a man, because there are um, sort of subtle ways in which we're describing uh, women differently than men in our recommendations. So I think um, those are some of my ideas and starting points. Of course, like you mentioned before, implicit bias training. Uh, I actually did it, uh, the free online version, and I found it very interesting. And there are many different versions you can do. Um, but you don't know what's there until you see it's there, right? Great. Oh, I appreciate that. Now, what about some ways in which the um, the Academy, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology, and our specialty in general, um, are there any ways that they're addressing these disparities that impact women in allergy that you're aware of? Well, one thing I recently saw was that for the Quad AI annual meeting, the late breaker abstracts would be accepted um, from people, men and women, who had delays because of increased household demands from COVID-19. Mm. So I think that that was an, a step in the right direction um, to sort of acknowledge that research delays happened and that um, you know you don't need to have had a clinical trial that finished yesterday to submit a late-breaking abstract, right? You could have had a delay personally, um, and so I think that that was a good step. Um, bigger picture things include, you know, ensuring women representation in our in our quad AI committees. Um, our board leadership, uh, our journals, both Jackie and Jackie in practice. Um, I can see a role for increased mentorship opportunities between sort of junior and senior women and women in, in allergy in general and also in academia and allergy. Um, and then whether the Academy or the Quad AF Foundation can support things like specific awards, financial or otherwise for women would be important to consider. Those are great ideas. Um, you know, I, and I can tell you that uh, from the conversations I've had, especially leading up to our, our podcast episode today, um, I know that there's a lot of support and I think that um, we can gain some traction to hopefully make some of these things come to fruition and, and try to make an impact. That'd be wonderful. Not to add I it agree. to your... Not to add to your list of things to do or, <laughs> or nominate you necessarily. There's many, many qualified people that could help with these efforts. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Um, now, are there ways in which women in our field can get more involved that you're aware of, uh, such as, is there any, are, are there any networking opportunities, any, um, you know, uh, even like, you know, Facebook groups or anything like that that you're aware of, or specific committees for this? Yeah, for, for me right now, the ones I'm aware of are things on Facebook or Twitter. Um, there are like Facebook groups for um, academic research moms. There's a, a physician's moms group or PMG. And PMG has like sort of a main one, main Facebook group. And then there's an allergy immunology one that I'm also part of. And then there, I'm a part of a Massachusetts one as well. So I have sort of three PMGs going at all times when I open <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> and then I also have academic research moms. So between all of that, I do feel like there's this uh, uh, virtual community out there, um, a network of sorts. That's great. And so as we wrap up, what's next for you? Are there any projects or upcoming publications, presentations that you can let us in on? I would be thrilled to use this opportunity to plug some exciting papers that are in press and Jackie in practice. Mm. 
Um, the first is uh, addressing penicillin allergy in pregnancy. And the first author is Dr. Anna Wilson, who is another young woman with young children at Mass General Hospital. Um, and that uh, is in Preston Jackie in practice. And then the other one is about asthma as a risk factor for COVID-19 uh, severe infections. And we use the Mass General Hospital registry of patients that I mentioned. We had so many patients, so we had a chart-reviewed registry data set, and we matched asthma patients to patients without asthma. Um, and we looked at um, ICU hospitalization, ventilation, and death, and found that asthma wasn't uh, a, alone wasn't as a risk factor for severe outcomes. The first author of that is Dr. Lacey Robinson, who's another young woman. Uh, female academic allergist with young kids. And she actually got that submitted right before having her second baby. Hmm. Wow, impressive. Oh, that's I great. Know. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, Dr. Blumenthal, I really, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today, especially since you mentioned, uh, so for those of you listening, we're recording this on the day of our grant deadline. And, um, you know, so you got, you got it all done and then you still made the time for us. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners appreciate it as well. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share before we say goodbye? It was really nice to have this conversation. I think it's going to be a long conversation and one that I hope that I have with um, a lot of men and women uh, in allergy and in medicine generally. Uh, I think I'll just end by reminding everyone that there are no rules. And that one paper that I read really sticking with me, like the 10 simple rules, there are no simple rules. Everyone uh, has different struggles with their clinical work, with their research, with their funding, with their home lives. There's no one size fits all solution. And that um, the research does show that that support is important. So having a professional network of women that you can turn to and also women mentorship is important. So um, I guess with that, thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. And I, I simply can't resist because of the way this conversation went. So I suppose that hopefully today's discussion will allow even more women to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> yes. It used to be a, have a seat at the table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>